I'm Laura Pierpoint, the Director of Early Climate Infrastructure at the Prime Coalition. And this is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. I'm a longtime friend of Emily Kirsch, the host you all know and love, and I'm filling in for Emily while she spends time with her family on parental leave. Fossil fuels have powered the planet since the Industrial Revolution. Nuclear fission powered the atomic age. But what will power the energy transition away from fossil fuels? Some think that fusion will be the linchpin of the answer. According to researchers around the world, fusion could be a nearly waste-free, carbon-free, and all-geography answer to creating enough dispatchable power to get us through the energy transition. But fusion-generated electricity isn't a reality just yet, although recent breakthroughs have brought it much closer. Less than a year ago, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory demonstrated the creation of net positive energy gain from a fusion reaction for the first time in history. And materials breakthroughs are increasing the amount of heat the components of a fusion reactor can sustain. In the meantime, all of the components of a fusion power plant need to be built so that when the day comes that fusion energy becomes a reality, we have the industry, infrastructure, and processes in place to distribute the power source of the future. And it all has to be cost competitive. This is exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Bob Mumgard, founder and CEO of Commonwealth Fusion Systems, is working on. Not all climate tech follows the same so-called smooth pathway through successive venture-funded rounds of development. Sometimes bringing technologies into the world looks more like massive integrated business development and scientific work that will birth a new industry all in one. Yeah, so it is a, a new industry, and, and we really look at it that way, and our, our colleagues and other fusion companies also look at it that way, and the DOE and investors look at it that way. It, you know, it deserves its own uh, industry because it is unique and it has, has huge potential impact. Which is why Bob Mumgard started Commonwealth Fusion Systems, to harness what he sees as the power source of the future. So... Uh, take the science that's been done before, add a few real key technical pieces, put it into a, a package of a company, a startup that's super mission-driven, all motivated by climate and the timeline that climate imposes, and uh, turn that into a practical energy source that then uh, would have the advantages that we've always talked about in fusion of scalability and deployability and safety and emissions, etc. Um, so it's a super big, audacious goal. Fusion energy is referred to by some as the energy source of the future because it's carbon-free, nearly waste-free, and doesn't come with geographic or fuel supply chain limitations. If you're to do this, it has some major, some pretty profound effects. So one, the, the fuel that you use is isotopes of hydrogen. The main fuel is actually deuterium. It's one out of every 6,000 hydrogens. Uh, and there's enough of that primary fuel on Earth to like power a 10 billion person planet that had everyone living at Western civilization standards to longer than the sun will last. So when we talk about sustainability, like that's the only reaction that's that sustainable. Literally never, uh, you'll never run out of fuel. The fuel is also equally distributed. So everyone has access to it. There's no controls over any piece of this. So once you figure out how to do it, uh, that means everyone could use it. It's a centralized power system. And even though some people would be willing to bet that fusion energy will never be a reality, Bob challenges them to consider the incredible amount of energy we'll need to break our reliance on fossil fuels. Do you want to bet the planet? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about $100 trillion, and if we don't get it right, our planet is pretty screwed. In order to pioneer an entirely new industry and to power the energy transition with fusion, Bob and his team at CFS are taking a new approach to fusion energy building all the necessary components of the power plant of the future. I spoke to Bob about everything CFS is doing to make the holy grail of fusion energy a possibility, starting with his childhood in Nebraska, and from there, his surprising path to becoming a leader in the burgeoning fusion energy industry. So super ambitious, super exciting. Let's talk about how you got here. So you grew up in Papillion, Nebraska, in a family of lawyers, but you were always interested in building things. So talk about what your childhood was like and what you were like. Oh, well, I mean, I was the person that like took apart the the stuff and put it back together. 
you walk in and you see, you know, brand new uh, drill that's been taken apart and, oh, here's the motor and then oh, I'll spread across the floor. Um, but uh, so, you know, I did that and then um, I did a lot of the things uh, in the sort of arts as well. And and eventually I went to school for mechanical engineering, a big, you know, big 12 school, big 10 school now, I guess. Um, but uh, and uh, did mechanical engineering and then eventually like didn't want to go and do what mechanical engineers from where, where I'm from, you know, a lot of them go and, and work in agricultural equipment, you know, building the tractors, which are amazing machines. Um, but, uh, I was like, ah, I wanted to do something else. So I ended up in physics and really liked about, Oh, you know, you can really understand how things work, um, at a deeper level than just taking apart a mechanism, like actually at a level of, um, you know, why the atoms are in that mechanism. And, uh, so did that and that was great. And I was doing physics and uh, eventually technology overran my, uh, my physics track. I was, I was building uh, science experiments to understand how to make hard drives faster. And then first MacBook Air happened that didn't have a hard drive, had a solid state hard drive. So time to go to grad school. And uh, <laughs> so I ended up uh, going to grad school in Fusion. All right, we'll come back to graduate school. But I just want to let you not off the hook on one question here, which is you said you were in the arts. So say more about theater. What did you learn from being in theater, being in the arts? And how do you take that with you in your current roles? Uh, yeah, so I, I was in like the debate and speech, uh, um, which I, I think people know me are not surprised I was in, in those. <laughs> but uh, also in uh, in theater and uh, music. And uh, it's... Uh, I think one of the, the key things is often we can like be enamored with the technology, right? And it doesn't really matter. Like the technology is just a tool. What really matters is the people, right? Like you have to be able to explain the technology to the people, uh, all the people that are affected, they have to have a say in it. And that sort of back and forth, um, uh, how to express what it is that we're trying to do as engineers and scientists to as broad a set of, of, of people as possible is definitely something that I learned from, uh, you know, doing that and, and communications. That's awesome. Okay. So you graduated from the university of Nebraska in physics and then went on to get a mechanical engineering master's and a PhD in applied plasma physics at MIT. So you were at MIT as a postdoctoral fellow in MIT plasma science and fusion. So tell us about your research at MIT and how it impacted your path to what you're doing at CFS. Yeah. So, so I ended up, um, looking at various fields to go into for physics as a, a graduate student. And uh, the MIT lab working in Fusion was just the right size lab. Uh, it was like 200 people that were all mission focused, working together to to build something um, and advance the, what we knew about how plasmas worked. And I was on a, a tokamak, a type of uh, Fusion machine, which is something I still uh, work work with. Um, uh there was at the time like a record record setting tokamak and went on to set more records while I was working on it. Um, and uh, so that was super exciting. I, I spent many years building a very uh, complicated way to measure what was going on inside these super hot plasmas to validate these simulations uh, and supercomputers that said, okay, do we understand what's going on inside these machines with the hope of making them better? Um, and, uh, Along the way, I also started to think a lot about uh, history technology and read about history technology and, and get into uh, that that type of work at, at MIT. Think about energy, energy club at MIT. MIT is a you know, great place to, to do these sorts of interdisciplinary stuff. And, uh, and eventually uh, became really, really uh, concerned about the climate change and started to think about, well, how, when would fusion be a, an actual solution there. And it, it looked like it was a long way off. I was definitely in the category of like, well, I don't know if this is ever going to get there. Um, but uh, then actually through some technical advances that um, I didn't have anything to do with, uh, you could see a path open. And uh, that became a subject of intense debate at uh, MIT and in the, the various uh, partners that are, are, are with CFS now um, about what to do, uh, how to actually uh, take advantage of the opportunities that were presented themselves. That sounds like a super exciting moment. And I really want to dig in on that. So you met six co-founders at MIT. How did you all meet? And what were these initial conversations? How did you decide to start CFS? Well, at the time, you know, there's the, the, the six six co-founders. Um, uh, and we have all worked together for, um, you know, 10 plus years now. Uh, 
And so we were in the in the various parts of the lab at MIT that was doing fusion, plasma science and fusion center, which is the second largest lab at MIT. So big lab. Um, but all it's almost, almost like a mini national lab, if you know what those are. Um, and uh, and we were looking for like, well, what's the future of the field? There had been funding cuts and the lab was in some uh, pressure from the Department of Energy and things were not very rationalized. And so, anyway, well, now it's a time to like shake it up and look at what we could do. And uh, we found a, a technical approach, which we'll talk more about probably in a bit, um, that uh, said, hey, there was another opportunity here. At the same time, we were seeing um, a couple other fusion companies start and trying to understand what they were doing and why. And we had, of course, a lot of people around us uh, at MIT who had built um, and were running uh, energy companies, uh, startups, batteries and flying wind turbines, uh, everything from mundane to extraordinary, uh, which was very much the culture and is the culture and the Boston energy scene. Um, and, uh, and so we started to put together various plans and it wasn't preordained that CFS would become a company or, or what exactly it would be, but it was really clear from the beginning that the technical opportunity was there and that the ecosystem was primed that like you could actually think about how to pull off a, uh, you know, a, a really audacious effort with a broad set of partners with a technical approach to fusion, sort of like you started to collect people that were serious people taking fusion seriously over a couple of years. And, uh, and that eventually became CFS. That's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, this, I remember this. This was a really interesting time at MIT when it was, you know, everybody was really getting interested in the energy transition. And there was a lot of entrepreneurial activity that was beginning. And I remember also at first it was like anyone in the nuclear space was left out of that until suddenly we weren't. There were these openings to really start building these kinds of companies, both in fission and also, amazingly enough, in fusion. But say a bit more about kind of the technical underpinnings of what brought you all together and how you really created the plans around the special sauce that you were going to bring to the fusion world. So, you know, under underpinning the sort of reputation and fusion that, you know, it's we've been working at a very long time and it's still a long time in the distance. That sort of implies that progress is not being made. And that's actually completely false. But uh, if you look at the, just the scientific um, productivity, the figures of merit that matter in fusion, that, that triple product I mentioned earlier, it's gone up faster than Moore's law. Like we've gone 13 orders of magnitude up in plasma performance since the 19, the 1970s. And we have like less than an order of magnitude to go to the way you need to be a commercial fusion machine. And that's primarily in these machines called tokamaks, which are big magnetic bottles. They're basically donuts made on magnets. And they use the magnetic field to insulate the plasma, make the plasma so you can uh, put heat in, it gets really hot. Um, the Soviets actually invented the the technology at the time. It was like, you know, one of these gob smacking things like this. There's no way it could work. Like, you know, send the British over to check it out in the Cold War. And it turns out, yeah, these things work. And we've built successive generations of them, like 150 tokamaks have been built to the point now that we understand the science inside them and that there's other ways to do fusion. And, and some are very interesting, but none of them are anywhere near the performance of the tokamak. They're all sort of one one uh, notch down on that technical readiness level. Um, and the world got uh, enough data from tokamaks, enough simulations to be able to predict how they were going to perform and to compare that against this huge database of all the existing ones. And that gave us confidence to actually go and build a, a giant tokamak in France called ITER. It's the world's most expensive science experiment. It's the largest construction project in Europe. We're talking about a $50 billion exercise, giant. Um, but so like a $50 billion statement of conviction that fusion is doable and worth doing. And the world um, scientific consensus is that machine will make 10 times power out than in, in the plasma. So that's what we were looking at. And that takes a long time to build. It's not terribly commercial. It's so big. But we know the science worked. And what happened is a material innovation happened. A, a new type of material, a superconductor. So it turns out these magnetic bottles, these tokamaks, are superconducting magnets. And this new superconductor had some novel properties, uh, won the Nobel Prize because of the novel properties, one of which is it's higher temperature. It's like liquid nitrogen temperature. It's not like room temperature. There's a bunch of noise about room temperature. It turns out that's, that's not real. Um, but the uh, previous no, you know, big breakthrough was uh, liquid nitrogen temperatures, which is high by standards for superconductors. And 
also could go to very high magnetic field. It eliminated a previous limitation on building magnets. And it turns out in all those tokamaks and all that science, the performance goes like the magnetic field to the fourth power. So if you double the magnetic field, you can get 16 times higher performance at all the same physics. Sort of think of it like a wind tunnel. And suddenly you have found a, a big change in that wind tunnel. And we know this because we built high field tokamaks out of copper magnets that like took an entire cities worth of power to run. And, but now we had a superconductor that could do the same thing. And so we, as a, we looked and said, oh, that means that you could take all this science that we already know and you could put it into something that is dual by a team that is like a company or a, a small group, super mission focused, that previously was only doable by like multinational governments. And, you know, that's like the moment that you go from like computers being full of vacuum tubes in a giant room to like seeing, oh, you can make computers like small enough to like put on a bench with a transistor, right? Every once in a while, these technologies happen where like something comes from outside and like takes something that is just on the verge of being really good and like supercharges it. And you can see that with the superconductor. And so we said, okay, let's put together a plan that would use that to go as fast as possible to the first generation of commercial fusion power plants. And that plan, which was put together in like in 2016, really, that plan is the same plan we've been executing um, and we're we're in step step three of four. So that's exciting. That's super exciting. Okay. I mean, so this is an amazing moment. So you've really got a lot of strong technological history. You've got a new breakthrough around superconductors. And you've got a uniquely awesome moment in time when there's a big focus on energy and lots of funding going into entrepreneurial activity. But fundamentally, you mentioned this, that this is the kind of activity that's been funded to this point by gigantic government initiatives. And you have to go out and convince funders to back you on all of this. So let's talk about that for a second. You raised your seed round with capital from any, and then in 2019, you closed a $115 million Series A round. So let's talk about the beginnings of this. What was it like fundraising for such a unique business? And what was it like to really kind of help create the community of fusion funders? Well, there had been fusion companies um, f- before, two, two notable ones, uh, General Fusion uh, and, and TAE, who have made a, a good run of it. You know, they've been around since uh, the aughts. Um, and uh, so, you know, we knew that there was some appetite to, to fund fusion uh, because they, they, they've, and they continue to, to move forward. Um, but the question was, could you get like enough to really make it a, a big push, right? A big, fast push. And so we began collecting you know, people that were interested. So the ENI, the large Italian oil and gas major, um, they looked and said, hey, fusion is super disruptive and uh, could be the future of how to take the, the talent in oil and gas and turn it into the next generation of energy. So they, they signed up. The people that became Breakthrough Energy, energy Ventures, BEV, you know, they were, um, wasn't quite BEV yet, but the idea was in the air that they would build BEV. And so they were, they were talking to us um, Vinod, um, Kosla, and Gates were were talking to us, um, and so there was a bunch. There was basically a swirl going on. Like, okay, there is something here. Like, what should it be? Um, should it be uh, another government funded project? Should it be a company? There was and everything in between. Um, and eventually, we decided no. Like, there was enough interest and enough conviction to do what was going to be required, the, the time, the amount of money to uh, turn it into a company, like a company with a very singular goal. And, uh, and there's enough talent to staff that company up. Uh, and uh, the technology had gotten good enough. The science had gotten good enough. And so about 2018, that all coalesced and said, okay, if we're going to do this. Let's go big. So it was a, aim was a hundred million dollar series a first real money in the company. And, uh, did a little better than that, but uh, off to the races we went. Very cool. And you weren't just a company. You also had a really unique relationship with MIT and specifically the Plasma Science and Fusion Center. Can you say a little bit about how that came together around that time and what it, what the agreement is? Yeah. So when you think about building sort of these tough tech companies, right? And everything in energy, right? In energy, we're moving atoms. Like, okay, maybe people do some software, but like really energy is like atoms, right? Molecules and atoms. That takes money. It takes like hard hats, cranes. Um, it takes infrastructure. And it doesn't make sense for a startup to go and like build that infrastructure out of the gate. Like you got to make sure the technology is good. You want to spend your time 
advancing the, the new stuff, not recreating the space to work. Same with the talent, like the, the interdisciplinary nature of any of this to, to do it. You have to have all the pieces work. Um, and so you want to leverage that where it is. And so, you know, we were able to work with MIT and we still, I mean, we still work with MIT at the same level. We've always worked with them, actually. Um, we're one of the, the largest funders of research at MIT, actually. Um, and, uh, but to use all the infrastructure the federal government had built. So, uh, you know, if you think about the 70s and 80s, you know, these institutions of the national labs and big research universities, you know, have high bays, cranes, and staff that is like steeped in the technology. And we're able to create a partnership where we put CFS people, oftentimes new hires that are from other industries, like manufacturing people from off of Tesla's line or rocket builders from, from the Falcon 9, and put them side by side with MIT researchers who thought about fusion for 30 years inside a building that, you know, was built by the Department of Energy in the heyday of, of energy research in the 70s. And, you know, pulled that all together into a package with enough money and, and importantly, like, few strings, right? So it could just be, like, streamlined. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, has been an extremely successful formula. It's allowed the whole thing to go faster than anyone thought was possible. That's awesome. Okay, so you've got this incredible mix. You've got funding, you've got ideas, you've got people, you've got a great relationship with MIT. So what did you achieve after the Series A? You talked about how you're on step three of four. So what did you do to get from steps one through three? Yeah, so step one was, you know, basically close as much of the tokamak science base as we could with the existing machines. So, you know, really nail down, hey, we understand how these machines work in this high field regime, it's sort of really high field. And so after CMOD at MIT, and other ones, but particularly CMOD, was in that regime. And so in 2016, we actually set the record for the highest temperature and density and basically the, you know, put the highest point up on that that plot that Tokamaks could do at the time and, and really even today um, uh, towards uh, a power plant. And in the process, like really refined all the models and the simulations and said, okay, this is our uncertainties um, for taking the step beyond this. And then... We knew we had to build the magnet. So the magnet was just material at the time. I mean, I remember I, I saw the first meter of this superconductor and it passed it in my hands. I was like, wow, this is crazy. And I, I remember ordering the first reel of it that was like 500 meters long and it took like a year to make. And now, you know, we sit here and we have, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of kilometers of this material in just a few short years. Um, so like get enough of that material, scale that industry up to make it. Um, and then develop magnets, develop like take that material and actually turn it into practical magnets at full scale. Like we're talking 10 ton magnets. And so we took the Series A and we turned it into um, uh, developing that magnet technology. And, and it took us about two years to get the magnet technology sort of figured out with subscale prototypes, you know, building things and burning things. At the time we were like breaking superconductor at a level that like was the entire world's supply of superconductor the previous six months, like all in a test that we broke and tested and like pushed to its limits. And then uh, that led to like the design of a full-scale magnet, um, a magnet we tested in September of 2021. It took us about a year to build and test that and had to build the whole test stand for it and novel refrigerators and, and all that. Um, but that reached 20 Tesla on, on the magnet. So twice the magnetic field what people had done before. At the time when we were building, it was like made of layers and it's kind of quaint now because each of these layers, like we have them around the lab and like, oh, that's kind of cute because we built much bigger ones now. But um, uh, each of those layers was the largest superconducting magnet in the world of, made out of this material. And 16 of them together was, you know, much, much more than anyone done. And we tested that in, in 2021 and, and it met all its goals. Uh, and it was a big day, actually. It was like we live streamed it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I've never watched people so excited to very, very slowly watch a needle tick up to 20 Tesla. But people were very excited because they knew what it meant. It meant that that step two of like, hey, man technology is now, is now ready. It's now you can think about building fusion machines within this magnet. That was done. Um, and so then immediately we went and said, okay, let's go build a fusion machine that takes this magnet technology and all the science and uh, makes actual net energy. You know, push a button, make a bunch of fusion heat. Uh, and that's where we're doing right now. 
So cool. So let's take a minute here to talk about a big moment that happened a little less than a year ago. So in December of 2022, the National Ignition Facility at Livermore announced that they had achieved for the very first time a fusion reaction where there was more energy that came out of the reaction than they put in. And so this was a huge deal across the fusion industry. So can you say a little bit about what that meant for you all and how your technology is different and your approaches are different or the same or what you're getting from the fact that they achieved that particular breakthrough? Yeah, so that was, one, it wasn't a surprise. So oftentimes you read about the news and, and anyone that's steeped in a field knows this to, to be true for their field. It turns out it's pretty universal for everyone's field, which is, you know, what's seen as a giant breakthrough um, from outside is actually the result of hard work and long periods of time. And the people that are close to it know what is going to happen um, because it's predicted, right? Um, and that's what happened with NIF. So this, what NIF is, is a very, very large laser. It's 192 lasers, each of which is the largest in the world. And they use that laser. You know, this is something the size of a football stadium. Um, they use that laser to compress uh, like the, the tip of a pin, uh, like a, a tiny little sphere, like millimeter scale sphere. And when they compress it, they can heat it up and it gets dense enough. And it turns out that it holds itself together for only a fraction of a second, like nanoseconds, picoseconds, but long enough that it reaches the conditions, the triple product that make more power out than in. And that's what, that's what happened. Um, they, for the first time, after lots of years of advancing the science, they were able to do that um, in a pulse in December. Um, so that was great because it meant that the, the science was right. Like this was something that we had predicted in the simulations, same simulations, same supercomputers that we used to predict the machines that we're building right now at CFS. Um, the science said, yeah, this should work. And it did. And it made um, more power than in uh, from that reaction. Turns out the laser is really inefficient though, right? It's like 0.1% efficient. So not enough to cover the laser losses. And the amount of energy they made was like a megajoule. So, you know, a cup of coffee, tiny reaction. And they did it, you know, like once a month and you need to do it like something like 10 times a second. So long way away from ever being a commercial thing in that topology. There's some people that want to try to turn that into a commercial topology. It's got some major challenges. Um, but the key thing was it showed to the world that like this is not like something that's infeasible from a science standpoint. And that then you know really bolstered what we're doing, which is to build the the on the tokamak, which is a more explored concept that is much more conducive to, to commercialization, make that same reaction happen more power out than in, but do it at somewhere around a thousand times more energy. Uh, more than that, um, and at an industrial scale with the efficient systems that are efficient enough to turn it into a power plant. And, and that's the machine that we're, we're really building right now. Coming up, Commonwealth builds a company around their technology. But first, a word from our sponsors. What It Takes is brought to you by our friends at Shell Ventures. Are you ready to scale your work in the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions, while also improving comfort by combining smart vents, thermostats, and software. Portfolio companies like Ample, who are solving how fleets charge in cities using novel charging infrastructure and autonomous robotics. And portfolio companies like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace, making it easier and more affordable for customers to decarbonize their homes with rooftop solar and batteries. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. And finally, What It Takes is brought to you by SPAN, makers of the award-winning SPAN panel, a smart electrical panel that enhances how homeowners interact with their energy. SPAN has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world, backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience from Tesla, Sunrun, and Google Nest. 
Emily had SPAN founder and CEO Arch Rao on what it takes for a great conversation about the future of residential energy. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy-efficient upgrades to your home like a heat pump? Wired recommends SPAN Panel as a borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel, almost essential if you have a backup battery. SPAN was recently top five in Forbes' 2023 list of America's best startup employers and just closed a $96 million Series B2 funding round, bringing their total funding to date to $231 million. Interested in advancing your career at one of the premier companies in climate technology or getting SPAN installed in your home? Visit span.io to learn more. So one of the things that we've discussed is that really it's been public and government funding that has underpinned a lot of the scientific progress, particularly in the early days of fusion. Uh, But obviously public funding is still really important in this space. So can you say a bit about what kind of funding is coming from the federal government and what is your relationship to it? Yeah, so the the federal government has been a longtime supporter of fusion. So they put about $700 million a year into fusion and plasma physics, mostly out of the Office of Science and the Department of Energy. And that includes going um, uh, as a 9% partner in ITER. Uh, They put some of the money into the the NIF laser. Most of the money in the NIF laser actually comes from the people that are uh, monitoring the stockpile. But um, uh, it's historically been very much about science. And so to have the emergence of a fusion industry is also a big change in how the government thinks about this domain. And so you've seen the government go in the last couple of years, you know, CFS is only five years old, um, but really in the last three years, you've seen the government start to pivot and the scientists say, hey, we actually want to think about how to turn this into a a useful technology and um, how to take the steps toward the first fusion net electric plants and, and closing the technical gaps to get there. And that's led to a whole series of public-private partnerships. So novel contractual things around, hey, how do you how do you do this sort of launch of an industry? Fortunately, we have some templates because the way that NASA worked with the commercial space industry, when SpaceX and Orbital um, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, they really got that off the ground. So borrowing some of the pieces from there and putting them into the fusion research um, opening some of the codes and simulation tools, the labs. And that's all been a theme now of public-private partnerships. You know, CFS, we've been a large beneficiary of that in terms of access. In terms of money, it's it's still, you know, single-digit millions, but uh, still very exciting because it shows, you know, this ecosystem starting to have a flywheel, right? The flywheels are starting to turn inside the fusion ecosystem where the different entities are uh, you know, building off each other internationally, nationally, and the companies and the labs. You know, it's a field that is unrecognizable from where it was five years ago. Yeah. Now, well, and to help out our listeners for a sec, because you mentioned that some of this funding is about helping to, you know, manage the stockpile. And so, of course, what we mean there is the stockpile of nuclear weapons. And I think it's important to mention that because this is really a space where obviously we're talking about energy and all the exciting application of fusion in the energy space. But there are things that are being done that are really helpful in the defense world and the space world, as you mentioned, which can be a really interesting way to kind of help that flywheel of technology progress, that there are kind of interesting points of of entry around, around the systems here. This is great. Okay, so let's talk a bit about your business model. So at the at the end of the rainbow here, presumably fusion is, you know, basically a kind of electricity source that's going to sell into wholesale power markets and really, you know, serve grids around the world. Talk about your business model now, because as you get there, there's still a lot of scientific work that you're doing. You mentioned a lot of deep public-private partnerships. How do you think about sort of the business model for how you do your work and how that's going to get you to the place where, you know, you're really selling into into essentially power markets. So by using the tokamak and using this magnet, we've we've done enough of the science to turn fusion from a, a science experiment for the tokamak into an engineering exercise, right? Like we understand how these things work, plenty of work left to do in optimizing and left to do in, um, you know, finding the right materials to make the, mo- the most economic. But now like a lot of what we work on at CFS is like, hey, how do, how do you build these things fast? How do you like make this into something that is scalable? And so the plant we're building now, Spark, you know, that's a billion dollar scale plant that is 100 megawatts of heat. So, you know, one of the largest uh, novel energy generation facilities in the world. And 
it's push a button and make 100 megawatts of uh, of heat from a reaction that, you know, previously the first time we ever really got to go on on Earth at more power out than in was just, you know, years before, a few years before. Um, and, you know, put that, uh, turn that isotopes of hydrogen into to helium, helium that like literally did not exist before. Um, and do that in a way that is replicable, that you can look at and say, yeah, I know how this thing scales. I know how this thing works. I know all the efficiencies of all these things. I know the receipts of everything that went into it. Um, and so that's a, a, you know, it's beyond just like a lab scale demo here. We're talking a full, full scale thing. Um, and that's what we're building now. And we're doing that because we're honing, you know, what the uh, company can deliver. You think about selling energy plants in the future, like novel energy plant. Like, you're not just going to show up and like, oh, I'm, I got this great idea and we've tried it on the bench. Now I'm going to go sell power. No, you got to have the ability to deliver it. The ability to deliver it on a budget, on a schedule, right? With all the different interconnected pieces, a supply chain that can deliver all the parts again. And so at CFS, you know, we have a pretty good, pretty big manufacturing effort that we make the, the, the actual fusion machine, the components, the magnets. Um, we're fairly vertically integrated in doing that. And we're talking about a 300-person team there, uh, that sort of scale. Um, you know, we have a plant design. So, like, how do you design and procure all the parts? How do you manage constructors to, you know, drawings have CFS, uh, you know, there's CFS drawings out there. And put the whole thing together, commission it, and, and turn it on. And so, we're, like, halfway through building that. But the goal is, you know, that machine, Spark, is the prototype for a power plant that's similar in many ways. Maybe a little bit bigger actually has a, a steam turbine on it, something we already know how to do, and takes that heat and turns it to electricity. And now go and, and build that um, in the same factory that we already have, uh, but now deliver that out on a, say, like an abandoned coal power plant and hook it to the grid and sell fusion electricity. And, of course, all the things that go with being allowed to do such a thing, um, which is non-trivial. Uh, but that that's the sort of business model is to become a deliverer of power plants, integrated bankable power plants in the same way that, uh, you know, the original actual power plants were, right? GE, Westinghouse, that's where they got their start. Well, let's talk about some of those things that will enable that to happen. So from a regulatory perspective, huge announcement recently, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission unanimously voted to regulate fusion like they do particle accelerators instead of the way they do a traditional fission nuclear reactor. So can you explain what that means and really what that means then for the fusion industry? So when you think about you know, regulation, you know, it's about hazard. Like, what is the the hazard that you need to control? And in and in fusion, because you you don't have any um, bomb grade materials, special nuclear materials, you don't have a chain reaction. There's no criticality or any equivalent of that. There's no uh, transuranic waste, no uranium. So there's no long lived nuclear waste. There's no uh, reaction that continues. There's no af- There's not the afterheat that when you want to shut down a fusion reaction, you literally can blow it out with a breath of air. That's how we shut them off. Like we puff a breath of air into them and they shut off, which is like the other side of why they're so hard to run. Like they need a very, very specific operating condition in order to fuse. And if they fall off that operating condition, they shut off. Um, And so that means that the types of hazards you have are hazards like, oh, when it is running, it's making neutrons, it's making x-rays, when you shut it off, it's got some activated materials. Some of the, the things the machine is made out of have been hit by neutrons and you know, they have their own uh, uh, changes inside those materials. And so depending on what you choose to make those materials out of, um, has different lifetimes for, for um, waste classifications. But it can be low level and it can be decades, not, not millennia. Um, and so that, that means this hazard base is very different than fission. There's no equivalent to most of the fission systems. In fact, there's not a lot about this that looks anything like fission other than the fact that you're splitting the nucleus or messing around in the nucleus. Um, uh, and so when, when, looked at, when looked at in that lens, the closest thing is actually the particle accelerators. It's the things that are like inside cancer treatment centers, you know, where you have to shield them. You have to make sure they're operated well. You might have some activated material. You might have things like tritium and some radioactive small amounts, grams or radioactive gases. Um, and that, of course, is an industry that already exists in particle accelerators. And it turns out it's regulated by the states in the United States. So the individual states regulate the particle accelerators. And so when we first started to build Spark, 
at that time, no one knew how we'd regulate any of this. It's like, okay, well, go ahead. You can start building it, but we have no idea how we, anyone lets you turn it on. It's like, okay, we'll take that bet. Um, and uh, eventually it came to the conclusion, oh, the state of Massachusetts is going to regulate Spark as a particle accelerator. And that now has been um, decided to be nationwide. Uh, and not only that in the U.S., but actually the U.K. front run that and actually decided they were going to do the same thing before the NRC. Uh, and Canada is looking now and other countries are looking as well. And so this is this is a huge deal, right? Because it means that you have a hazard-based regulatory scheme um, and you have it in the hands of, of locals, right? It's closer to the public. It's, it's you know, generally something that studies show that that's more trusted. Um, you sort of have the laboratory environment of the states to be able to say, hey, how does this new technology, how is it going to evolve, right? It's not prescriptive. It's not reactive to what, you know, we've made decisions in the past and whether or not it was a PWR or a molten salt or whatever. Um, it's, it's much more uh, dynamic. And so you're looking now at um, a regulatory certainty in this field for fusion that is enough to like make some really serious investments, but still flexible enough to evolve with an industry. And that, that playing field is completely different than fission. It's much closer to what you see in other energy technologies. And that comes from the fact that this reaction, right, is a completely new reaction. So you got to meet it where its its merits are. Okay. So let's talk a bit about what you've learned and some reflections on the company. How many people are on the team today? And what have you learned about hiring since you started building the team? Yeah. So the CFS full-time employees, I think, is just under 600 right now. Um, so it's it's one of the biggest clean energy uh, companies that's not building EVs, as it turns out. Um, uh, it's uh, doubled every year since it started, usually faster than a year, which every time you double a company, right, the majority of the company is new. So that means we're on our like, you know, ninth doubling. It's our ninth iteration of the company, something like that. Um, uh, so that's that's super exciting. When you, when you add in like all the partners, you know, because we partner deeply with national labs and universities, um, it's closer to like 800 and we put in the people that you know, every day are contractors and building our, our things that, um, deep, deep partners, uh, contractors. It's like 1600, I think is what the last, uh, economic footprint I saw. So it's big. Um, uh, so building that from scratch, <laughs> um, has been quite a journey. Um, uh, and I think it's been a really, uh, eye-opening thing because when you have like a really big audacious goal and you actually have serious people around to do it, you're not just in zombie mode or anything like that. You're actually doing it. Um, you can build a snowball effect if you attract really great people who then attract really great people. And then like they, they build things that are really great and that attracts more people. And, uh, and we've been able to do that. We've been fortunate that, you know, the company's got uh, just a, talent from all, all different backgrounds, people that build, you know, submarines, people that, you know, it's basically every, every single first of a kind rocket right now that's flying, like someone that led one of those teams is on this company. Um, anyone, it's like a, a all call for anyone that's doing something really hard, really audacious, like first of a kind. Um, you can find the Hyperloop people and you can find people that, you know, long careers running nuclear power plants, people, um, uh, building, uh, data and tech companies that are you know, writing software for how to control fusion machines. Uh, so it's uh, people from every type of manufacturing, from like washing machines to EVs, um, putting together magnets. And uh, then, of course, obviously PhDs, plasma physicists, material scientists. Um, and to be able to build that from uh, basically adjacencies, like if you don't have an industry, like then you're not beholden to what was before, right? Like, oh, don't like the diversity of your industry? Well, if you don't have an industry, not a problem. Go and uh, pull from other industries, pull from adjacencies. Uh, and we've been able to, to do that in fusion, not just us at CFS, but, but other fusion companies. And I think that's been maybe an underreported uh, aspect of, of this because it's a, you know, it's a, like a renaissance of building like hardcore engineering manufacturing in the United States. Um, there's not very many people that are doing that. It's basically the Musk companies and some of the EV companies. Uh, and, and then now it's like some of the fusion companies. Super exciting. So cool. Just about every founder on what it takes has been within months, weeks, days, or hours of closing their doors. 
How close has CFS come to closing your doors? Uh, well, before CFS, we were funded by the Department of Energy. And uh, I remember it was, it was 2012, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, uh, and uh, the Department of Energy c- canceled the program, like zeroed out, you know, went from 200 people to zero. Uh, and so that was like, we're going to close the doors. And at the time at MIT, you know, there was like a lot of handering what to do. And like the first thing it was like, okay, well, keep the team together. And so there was periods there where we had technicians uh, going through basements to get copper, to scrap copper of like, you know, old experiments to pay people, people's paychecks. And eventually, you know, after like a, uh, about a year of doing that, we looked around and we still had the same team. Everyone was still there. I mean, they had like pink slips for that long, right? Um, it's like, well, what are we doing this for? Like, we're doing this for for fusion because like we really believe this could have an impact, right? We're doing this because the team that's been built is such a great team. Um, and MIT had our back. It was like, yeah, we're going to keep these lights on. We're going to find ways to do this. And so that really led to the introspection and then eventually outside inspection, looking out, um, uh, that became CFS, but also became the you know revitalization of the entire MIT Fusion lab, um, which is now you know a extremely uh, strong lab, the best university lab in my opinion, Fusion in the world. Um, and uh, but like it, at the time, it looked like it had no future, and it, the doors, the lights were literally like it was literally like shut the lights off, like because we can't pay the bills. Um, you know, so that was before CFS. And one of the things was, well, let's not put CFS into that position. Let's make sure that we have investors who get what it's going to take, get what we're after, um, and uh, build a really strong, open, um, collaborative environment to like drive this fast. And and with some urgency too, to like, you know, every day we get something done, and you look and say, well, let's do it again the next day. Right? Um, and so, fortunately, we haven't had uh, any of those any near-death experiences that were quite the level of uh, collect the scrap metal. Um, uh, and I hope I hope we never do, but if we do, you know, I'm sure that the reaction of the team will be the same, which is like, yeah, we're going to do it because we're going to, this technology ex- deserves to exist and this is the best team in the world is going to do it. I mean, that's an extraordinary story and it really speaks to the passion of the people that you have on your team there. Um, amazing. So if you could go back in time five years ago when you were founding CFS, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, it's it's way harder than you think it's going to be. Um, but also uh, the opportunities are way bigger than you think. That like when you think about um, five years ago, we're like, okay, we're going to raise $100, $100 million. That was a series, series A. And that was at the time, like people thought that was crazy, right? A lot of people say that's crazy. Um, and then we're like, okay, well, after that, we're going to have to go raise a billion. And be like, there's no way you ever do it. And we ended up raising $2 billion. Um, and so, uh, one, like if you have the big, if you have the audacity and like the ability to, to pull the people together and then also, um, the execution, like, you know, the, the relentless, like get the, get the stuff done. Um, you put those together, uh, that is like a, a huge, uh, powerful that's, thing, right? Because when you're staring down the energy transition, you're staring down climate change, like you need to have solutions that are to scale the problem combined with the like actual ability to do it. And that combination, I think, is the thing that like the most successful of the climate tech companies are able to balance that, like this very big audacious thing with the challenges that come like, from doing something that's really hard for the first time, like novel stuff every day, right? And to marry those two together and not let them clip each other, not clip the wings of what it could be, but also not let it run away from what it is. Um, like that is like the key mixture, but it does take like this special sort of view. Like it's going to be really, really hard, but the opportunities are probably bigger than you even thought they were going to be. Um, and I, I think, you know, that whether it's uh, CFS or some of the other companies, and obviously we don't know how it's going to go. Everything could go completely sideways right in the future. But like that fact that it could even, even exist at all, is, is, I think, a super hopeful thing for the energy transition. That's great. What was the single worst day for you at CFS? Well, the day that the funding was cut was, was pretty bad. That was before CFS. Um, you know, there was a, there was a day where um, we, uh, <laughs> there was a day where we, we killed a magnet 
<laughs> and it was a very expensive magnet at the time. At the time, it was like, you know, uh, years worth of work. But like, it was cool because like we knew that we like basically ran this uh, experiment that was like 50-50. It was like, we're like, this is either going to work or it's not, but it's going to be definitive, right? And like, we'd done all the things leading up to it. And it really was a, um, are we really going to do this, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, we're really going to do it. Because if it would if it would have worked the way that we we some of the models had said it was going to work, like it would have led us down one path of uh, of uh, uh, technology next step, and if it worked the way the mag the other model said it was going to work, it would have led down another. And the difference was one path you had a magnet at the end, the other one you had a fused piece of metal, <laughs> and and we pulled the switch and it ended up being the path that was a fused piece of metal. <laughs> so that was the moment was like ah. Oh, bomber right but then you looked you say no like this is the entire process like this is like the build test learn right it's like when you think about why when someone launches a rocket and like it blows up at stage separation people are cheering it's like because it got that far like you learned so much and like the fact is that you still have the the team you still have the money like you're just going to go and you're going to do it again it's going to get even better and that sort of audacity to build test learn means that you have this these bad days in the sense that like oh you know, that was a lot of work and I really wish I was going to play with that some more. But then on the other side of that same coin, you have like, oh, but like if we never would have put it, you know, taken that risk, like we never would have been able to take the next one. And now we look and we say like, oh man, like so glad we did that, right? Like we could have babied this whole thing and we'd just be years behind where we are right now. Um, and, and it's almost quaint. Um, but those, those bad, doesn't make it hurt any less in the moment. Like, I think anyone that can tell you like hardware based companies where like, you know, the, the worst day is something that, you know, didn't go quite the way you hoped. And at the end of it, you, you're looking at your last six months in a mangled mess. Like anyone that's done that before will tell you, you know, the learning is all great, but the moment it stings. Get that. What was your single best day at CFS? Hmm. Oh, that's hard. There's been a lot of really good ones. <laughs> it's all good. I should have prepared for these questions. I should have been able to anticipate them. Uh, so, uh, single, single best day. Um, actually, we had to, we had a day just yesterday um, that you know. So here we are at um, at our campus in Devons. So this is a fifty acre site. Um, so it's pretty big. We got multiple buildings on the site. It's about two hundred fifty thousand square feet. So, um, including the Spark um, plant, which is now like at the stage where it's a, we're starting to install the the tokamak in it. So think about, you know, big hundred foot by hundred foot room. that's 10 feet thick of concrete. That's got um, a place for tokamak and factory here. And we had uh, our first ever family day. So like 800 people of like uh, all the people that joined the company, some of which have been here, you know, 20 years, some of which have been in fusion for their entire careers. We're talking like people, we have people on the team that have been in fusion for 50 plus years. Um, and uh, so they're all here showing their family, like the thing they built. Right. And like to, to see people explain um, in, you know, Token McCall uh, why it's designed the way it is because they designed it or see people explain a manufacturing piece of equipment for making a magnet and like the thing they worked on. But also to like try to explain the things they didn't work on and sometimes see things they'd never seen before the employees, right? Because people are busy doing the work. They don't wander around <laughs> looking at all their stuff. Um, that was super, super cool. Um, uh, and so that, 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 was, that was just yesterday. Um, I don't think we'll do that again more in the future, but, and we just basically opened the doors up to, to everybody and said, just wander around, like self-guide and obviously had things for kids and stuff, but like, uh, yeah, it was good. That was cool. It's like, oh, we, we built something here. People are, are taking a big bet on this. And oftentimes we can, we can think about the investors taking a big bet, but like really, you know, the people that are actually on the ground doing it and their families, like they're making a bet too. And it's a very hopeful bet on the energy transition on technology and science getting us out of this hole that, you know, really technology and science have put us in, but in the process made a, a pretty a world worth, you know, moving forward. That's great. What will the future fusion industry look like a decade from now? And what will CFS look like a decade from now? Oh, it's super hard to guess. Um, I think if anyone has looked at the history of technology, um, once it starts uh, to go, it's really hard to see where it will go. Right. That's one of the great things about technology. Technology put in the hands of, of people um, that enable other things like, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have guessed that AI was going to be, you know, basically to 
to <laughs> answer questions on the internet or or construct uh, various types of uh, abstract art. But hey, you know, it's hard to see where these things go. Um, and in Fusion, I don't know, but like I know the steps to get there. Like Net Energy is next, which is the machine we're building now. And like sometime in hopefully 25, 26, depending on how things go, we'll push a button and we'll make a whole bunch of heat and we'll see... Um, uh, you know, cooling towers kick on of fusion heat. Um, and that'll be really cool. And then, you know, but by then the question will be like, well, what's next? And the next thing better be lined up. And the next thing is to build a power plant. Um, uh, go somewhere and like take down a boiler that used to power a, a town and pay good taxes and good jobs and turn it into a boiler that doesn't have the coal and doesn't have the emissions. Um, but then after that, uh, the hope is to be able to scale stuff, right? If anyone's working in energy and you want to look at what 10 years look like, like 10 years must look completely different than it looks today. That is the nature of the energy transition. If it looks, if you can, like, if you're thinking linearly 10 years from now, like it's going to be twice or three times what it is today, that means the world is going to burn. Um, it's got to be 10 times what it looks today. And so that's super exciting. It's like, there's no better time to try to think about like, you know, um, all the, the things that are need to align and many of them are aligning um, behind such a large transition. Um, it's like waking up in like 1980 and knowing the internet was going to happen, right? <laughs> like, it's like, that's kind of what the energy transition is. So uh, I think it's going to be very exciting. Um, we'll don't know what's going to look like for CFS. I, you know, certainly hope that we're uh, the, the leading fusion company and we're building many, many power plants, in 10 years um, and and trying to manage what will have to be or like 20th doubling or something. I hope that's what it is, uh, but uh, don't know, but I think it's an exciting time to try to do it. Love that. Okay. Before we get into our high voltage round, I want to make sure our listeners are totally clear about what you're building at CFS. So in one sentence, can you describe what CFS is and what it does? So what CFS does is develop and build fusion power producing plants. Great. Okay. You ready? We're going to do five second answers on this round of questions. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? A beaver engineering. Love it. What inspires you? Uh, the technology can change the world. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Podcasting. <laughs> Great answer. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, the, the the long list of people in Fusion that came before, people that built lots of Fusion machines. Tell me about a specific time that you failed, and you don't get to make the answer that everyone wants to make, which is that you fail every day. Uh, I I uh, got a the lowest grade I ever got in grad school in plasma transport, which is probably means I shouldn't be a plasma physicist. Instead, I should do something else, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> what lesson has taken you the longest to learn? How to be adaptable. Like constantly be adaptable. What's the best investment you've ever made? In the the 10 years it took to get this company going. What's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I used to think that like, like the energy transition was basically impossible. Um, like if you like really, if you're, if you're in the energy world and you look at the, the numbers, it looks really, really hard, right? Um, if you're like used to just what we've been doing. But I don't believe that anymore. Like I've now seen enough from this company, but other companies too. Like, no, this is doable. Love that. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and work and why? Uh, one of my co-founders, Dennis White, who runs the Plasma Science Infusion Center. Like we bounce ideas back each other back and forth all the time. And he's he's very complimentary to to what I am. We're different, but it's a good good relationship. Awesome. When are you your best self? 4 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> That's awesome. What's your worst trait? Uh the sort of driven, the drive. <laughs> I can drive over things. <laughs> if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, the, the equality. Like, it's super lumpy at all levels. Energy access, money, the whole thing is like super lumpy. If there was just one person listening to this podcast, who would you want it to be? Laura Pierpoint. <laughs> you know I will. <laughs> the next question doesn't really fit perfectly then because it's if that person were standing in front of you right now, what would you say? And given that I am. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Awesome. When was the last time you were scared? Yeah, we had a like a, a safety thing that was, like there was a, an hour where like we weren't sure if someone was hurt. What's your best quality? Uh, probably my drive. 
What's the hardest kind of help to ask for? Uh, hardest kind of the hardest kind of help to ask for. I don't. I, I ask for a lot of help. <laughs> it's it's probably something related to delegation. <laughs> yeah, I think we all struggle there. All right, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they run out of money. If you really knew me, you would know. Uh, this is like what I do with almost all my time. Success is making a new industry. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have started earlier. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be probably fusion. I'm most proud of uh, that's a team. And to build a successful startup, what it takes is grit. Great word. I love that. Bob, thank you so much. This is going to be a great episode. Really appreciate you joining us on what it takes. Bob Mumgard is the founder and CEO of Commonwealth Fusion Systems. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund and follow Powerhouse on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. You can find me on LinkedIn. Whether you're a first-time or a long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review and read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who might like this episode, please send them the link. Isabel Lee and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Brenda Hernandez is our podcast producer. I'm Lara Pierpoint, filling in for Emily Kirsch, and this is What It Takes.